Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Hey, folks, this is Kevin Allison. Hey, I wanted to ask, have you ever heard this song by Denise LaSalle? You're making us feel good, but you can make us feel better. It's a terrific song, but I just want to make clear, she's not talking about how to get your postage out. She's talking about tongue and clit. I know a better way to get your postage out, and you don't need to lick shit. Unless, of course, you're into that sort of thing. I mean, of all the paraphilias, that one is unforgettable. My point is, when you're not noshing on the crotch tacos or the ass apples, you could be using stamps.com. You can get your mailing and shipping done without leaving your desk. Stamps.com turns your PC or Mac into your own personal post office that never closes. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your computer and printer. Then just hand the mail to the mailman or drop it in the mailbox. You'll never have to go to the post office again. We use Stamps.com at Risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. Right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial, plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Then you'll have plenty of time to follow Denise's advice. Want to please her Just find a little man in the boat 
But if instead of finding that little man, you find yourself thinking, damn, I, I don't have a, a good enough mattress for all this activity I'm planning. Well, I know where you'll find the best mattress at Casper.com, where you get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting Casper.com risk and using the promo code risk. These Casper mattresses are obsessively engineered at a shockingly reasonable price. They've got just the right sink, just the right bounce. They use two technologies to get these Casper mattresses just right. Latex foam and memory foam coming together for just the perfect fit. This is a risk-free trial with a return policy. You can try sleeping on a Casper mattress for 100 days with free delivery and painless returns. They're made in America. This is $500 for a twin-sized mattress and $950 for a king-sized mattress. You go to the store, you'd be paying $1,500 for that kind of a mattress. And right now, you get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com risk and using the promo code risk. Other than that, just don't forget. Hey, lick it for your sticker. Lick it for your sticker. Lick it for your sticker. Now here's the show. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Nicodemus behind me now. He who must be born again. (laughs) Oh, scriptural humor. Folks, we're calling today's episode Live from Milwaukee. Of course, all the while we were prepping the show, we were calling it Milkaki, because that's just downright clever. But this is the first time in a little while that we've uh, featured almost an entire live show uninterrupted, because the energy in that room in Milwaukee, just, you know, about a month ago, was just so special. Just great people, great audience. I'd never been in Milwaukee before, and a couple of the people who told stories had never told stories live on stage before. One of the things that you should know is that (laughs) I had very recently discovered that a piece of writing I did in 2000 had just resurfaced on the internet. I wrote a porn story for Play Guy magazine about my days as a cater waiter in the late 90s when my career was in the toilet. So, whereas we are normally true tales, boldly told, that will be a fake tale, 
boldly told. I think that's right after the first storyteller, I decided to regale the audience with a little bit of my uh, former career as a porn story writer. We're going to start with a charming young lady who does a lot of work with comedy sports there in Milwaukee. She is Alicia Allstetter, and we call her story That New Ship Smell. There I was, the summer of 2007, and I was racing for the nearest emergency room with my six-year-old daughter in my arms, covered with vomit and urine and blood. When I raced into the hospital doors, doctors and nurses rushed toward me, saying things like, five cc's of saline, stat! Blood pressure cuffs, stat, in my head. In reality, a nurse just handed me some forms and said, um, sit down and fill these out, and can you tell me exactly what happened to get you here? So, okay, my husband and I and our kids were coming home from a family vacation in Michigan, and um, now all four of our kids get car sick. So we had the idea that we would take the high-speed car ferry across the lake instead of driving all the way around. And my neighbor convinced us to do this because he was like, uh, yeah, okay, your kids will love it. Uh, the inside looks like uh, airplane. There's a big movie screen and there's a snack shack. So yeah, way better than driving, especially if you have four kids who puke. Um, yeah, so we were convinced. And then when we saw the boat, we felt very confident. I mean, for those of you who have never seen it, uh, the high-speed ferry, it is a large, white, majestic, gleaming catamaran. And it's like, 200 feet long and 30 feet high and there's like three stories there's the first level is all cars and then the mid level is like the cabin area that has uh, windows all the way around and a walkway around that and the top level is very open with benches so you can just sit up there and enjoy the beautiful lake which on the way across, we had a blanket spread out there and it was like we were sunbathing on a dock. And when we boarded the boat in Michigan, it was a beautiful day. The sky was blue and clear and we ran onto that boat and all the way up to the top deck so we could wave goodbye to the shore and we were inland at that point, and we had to navigate to the open water through this canal. And at the end of the canal, there's this picturesque lighthouse, very New Englandy. And the waves were hitting the lighthouse and splashing up to the top. And I'm like, look, kids, high waves. 
and they were very pumped and excited, you know, because they were just glad to be out of the car and on to their boat adventure. And now I was feeling, I mean, I was tired at this point. I was really looking forward to just getting into the cabin and finally getting a chance to just go to the bathroom and get a snack and settle in. But we're still up top, and this couple is standing near us, and the guy is like, this is awesome. This is so much better than Chicago traffic. And his wife is like, I hate boats. I always get seasick. And sure enough, when we hit the open water, the waves that had been previously hitting the lighthouse were now tossing this giant boat like it's a rubber duck. And at first, people were, like, laughing um, because it felt like a carnival ride, you know, like, like a giant tilt-a-whirl. And my kids even were like, oh, cool, and we were high-fiving. But I think, I think that they've calculated the exact amount of time one can tolerate being on a tilt-a-whirl. And I think it's, like, two and a half minutes. <laughs> And now, unfortunately, we are on a tilt-a-whirl that's going to last more along the lines of two and a half hours. And though I have paid $5 to ride on a tilt-a-whirl, I was really regretting the decision to pay $500 for the extended version. And then it gets worse, and waves like I have never experienced start taking the water up and washing it onto the top deck. Three stories up, water is coming over. And then the wind is like deafening. And my husband's like shouting to me, but right near me, but I can't hear what he's saying. And my kid's faces just like fell. And, like, the horizon was swinging wildly. So if you look to the side, first, all you saw was sky. And then all you saw was water. Then all you saw was sky. And then all you saw was water. <laughs> and the water spray was icy cold. I mean, it was like that garden hose right on you. And so people are, like, understandably heading for the stairs to get below deck into the cabin. Only now, no one can walk straight, and everyone's, like, at a 45-degree angle. And with the deck, like, wet and shifting, people keep wiping out. And, like, the stairs are not, like, centrally located in the boat. No, they are on the edge near the railing. And so I have one hand on the railing, and I have one hand holding my baby to me, and I have this terrifying image that my kids are going to slide across the deck and slide down the stairs and over the railing and overboard. And my husband, who is not a strong swimmer, okay, he does not like the water, and he is like, we've got to get below deck inside. But I am frozen. Like, I can't walk 
I'll fall and I'll smash the baby's head in or we'll fall down the stairs and overboard. I'm like, no, I can't walk. But he's like, you can't stay here. Come with me. But like we locked eyes and I shook my head. And so he knew he knew what was up. So he tried to grab like three sets of hands and like walk slide to the stairs. And I saw him lose grip on my daughter, my oldest, and she fell and she went down and then just had to crawl her way to the stairs. So sad. But I saw them (laughs) safely get lower. And then I crept with the baby to the front of the boat. There was this bulkhead, this wall. And I just crouched down like in front of it. And I put both arms around the baby. And I just sat right down on the ground. And I was trying to brace us against the waves and kind of shield him from the water that was washing over us. Normally, he would like say something or he would try to get down, but he's just like has his face right into my chest. Like he doesn't even want to know what is happening. And so I tried to soothe him, you know, and, you know, make him feel better. But it just sounded like, you're going to be fine. I've got you. You're okay. You know, good. And it was reminding me, like, the situation. What was that movie? Oh, yes, Titanic. (laughs) And I'm like, are we going to go Edmund Fitzgerald here? You know, is Gordon Lightfoot going to have to write a song about this day? You know, like, the wreck of the Lake Express Ferry, or I I don't know how the song goes. But yeah, I was like, this is a mistake. It's a mistake. I didn't really think we'd go out like this, uh, at least not today. But then as I looked up, like in between waves, I saw that everyone on the boat was starting to get sick. And I am not the type of person that does well with barfing. Like if someone's starting to retch or anything, like I run away. But now I just have this, like, I'm a captive audience, like with a front row seat to just dozens of people puking their guts out. And the woman who, like, didn't like boats was, like, sitting right in front of me. And she just, like, opens up her handbag and is, like, puking, like, right into it. And then my, my little guy starts just puking down the front of me. And where I was huddled on the ground, there were these two guys standing that, that were in the Navy. And they were like standing on either side of me and they were trying to be helpful. And they were, you know, kind of hovering around and they were giving me really good tips like, you should have taken Dramamine. <laughs> and I'm like... Thanks, hindsight. And then meanwhile, down in the cabin, the entire place starts getting sick. The passengers are puking. The snack shack staff is puking. My husband's puking. My kids are puking. And the stewardess can't keep up with the demand. Like they're running up and down, like passing out barf bags and collecting full barf bags and then puking. (laughs) There's even this like sealed off room, like within the room for rich people who want to pay extra 
so that they don't have to be with the commoners. <laughs> but they were puking, too. <laughs> but, you know, at least they weren't in the very large, unventilated room with hundreds of people puking. <laughs> okay, morale was low, right? <laughs> I mean, my family momentarily brightened when my daughter threw up on the floor and the stewardess had to walk through it. And that, that was the highlight of the, of the trap. I kept waiting for myself to get sick, but as it turns out, I don't get seasick. Um, I had no stomach sensations at all. It, it was awesome. I still, though, really had to go to the bathroom. And I can't walk anywhere still because of this baby. And I'm sitting on the ground. And now by this time, there is so much water on the deck. Like, we have our own waves just washing back and forth. And so I'm sitting there looking, and I'm like, okay, I only have one option here. So I sat there, and I just peed through my clothes (laughs) as I sat on the ground. And, like, I tried to time it, you know, just right. So I was peeing when the water was deepest. And I was hoping to be finished by the time the water had gone away. Um, so, you know, yeah, it was hard. It was, I wanted it less obvious. Um, but that didn't work out so well. Um, so I kind of watched, you know, like, my pee go away from me. And it was just mixing with all the diluted puke. And then it was washing over the shoes of the guys standing next to me who were just pretending not to notice. But yeah, at that moment, I really felt like I had really just left civilization behind. Like, social norms, they're gone now. It's over. As you may remember, because of our initial bad car ride, just to even get to the boat, my kids have had just nothing in their system. They've kept nothing down. And so they were starting to get dehydrated and listless, and their eyes were like rolling back in their head, and they weren't staying conscious. So my husband comes up to check on me, and he's like, look, you need to come down now. And the waves were more predictable, so we crept down the stairs. But when I saw my kids, I saw that the worst was not over. So my daughter, who was seeming really weak, said she had to go to the bathroom. And so I took her but we can't get into any of the stalls because they are full of sick passengers who can't remove themselves between retching. Like, if you look down the row of stalls, all you see are bottoms of shoes because everyone's on their knees, you know, with their heads in the toilet. So we're standing there and waiting. And now, I must say about my girl, she is a brick. She is not easily phased. She's a good girl. But as she's standing there waiting, she wets her pants, and then she starts crying because she's embarrassed. So I go to hug her to reassure her, and I look at the back of her little tiny pink skirt, and I see that she's completely peed blood. And her skirt is just red. I panic inwardly, and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, just get me to Milwaukee, Get me off this fucking boat. Get me in a fucking hospital. I've had it. 
And she saw the blood too. And you know, like we looked at each other and she's like, mama. And I, I tried to just be very nonchalant. I tried to just be like, oh yeah, you know, that can happen. Um, it's fine. I've seen this before. This is nothing new. You're fine. But like, I know by the way she's looking at me that, you know, she is not convinced. So I carry her back to my husband and I like bend down and whisper to his ears. I'm like, she has just peed blood. I told her it was normal, but she knows it's not. It was so humiliating walking into the hospital that day with all these kids just soaked in every bodily fluid imaginable. And the doctor's totally like giving me side eye, you know, like, so you were on the lake with the children today? And I'm like, they always blame the mom, okay? Like the dads, they, no one ever cares. They're like, oh yeah. He probably thought it would be like Gilligan's Island, but you, you should have known better. Like, three-hour tour? That's always a bad idea. <laughs> but um, we got her rehydrated, I must say, and now she is fine. She's fine. She lived through it. But we did have a bit of the PTSD over this, and um, but we worked through it through play because we have... We have this bathtub toy at home that's a boat. And for months afterwards, whenever we took a bath, we had to play this game called Too Much Water on the Boat. <laughs> and we would take the boat and we would like rock it back and forth and we'd dump water on it. And it had these two little guys and you could fill them with water and then we'd have them throw up or pee alternately. <laughs> that's how we worked through that. And as I was writing this and working on it, I actually went to the website, and it was hilarious because on their webpage it says, experience new boat smell <laughs> on our newly renovated 2015 cabin. And yeah, you can totally tell that was just combating all their Yelp reviews that were like, that boat reeks. Like, everyone puked and peed. It was awful. So I live near Lake Michigan, and I look across it, you know, often. And so people will ask me, are you ever going to go back across on that boat? And I've thought about it, but ultimately, I'm always like, um, fuck that. Anyway, thank you. I think someone's coming up next. Yes, it's Kevin. <laughs> Alicia Alstetter! <laughs> Did I forget to tell everyone the, the theme of tonight is fuck this? <laughs> uh, and let's hear it for a story that has a Gordon Lightfoot reference. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a huge folk music nerd. So Gordon Lightfoot warmed my hat. I, I have been, we're trying to figure out for five years now why I occasionally suffer from vertigo, why I, you know, these, it'll happen for like three or four days. How tall I, are you? What? How tall are you? <laughs> I think I'm 5'10 or 5'11. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, 5'9, vertigo. <laughs> 
Uh, no, I uh, I think it's because of a drug called Cymbalta, an antidepressant that I'm now off of. But it totally renders me unable to walk in, in a straight line, and I'm vomiting all the time. And I, at the DC, we did a show at DC recently. And I swear to God, I was holding on to the microphone just to stay standing. It was such a crazy ordeal. I did manage to hold the vomit until after the show. So I was so proud of that. Um, Oh, I promised that I was going to read you a bit of my masterpiece of literature. That was written. Now, here's what it was. I could remember the pseudonym that I used. I called myself N.N. Beckmuth uh, because I thought N.N. sounded like a fascinating couple of initials that a writer might have. And I thought Beckmuth was cool because it was like Macbeth, but backwards. So I did remember that, and just being able to Google that, I finally found this story again. Now, here's the deal. I don't say this in the story, but it is uh, based on this place that I once did a catering gig, which was one of the Koch brothers' seaside estate, this gigantic place on the sea. Everyone's dressed in all white, and it was a wedding, right? Now, in the story, I am the son of this Koch brother guy, and my name is Giacomo, which... (laughs) Which it would never be the name of one of the sons of the... But it's like, I thought that's a hot name. I'm not going to call myself Kevin, you know, the, the smolderingly hot Kevin. And the other character is this cater waiter, this Latino cater waiter, who I refer to as dark blue because of his dark blue eyes. Okay, so what has happened is... I, the rich kid, the son of this, you know, multi-billionaire, is hiding in the closet with a mirrored uh, window there, you know, one-way mirror, watching the cater waiters change out of their clothes. A very perverse thing for young rich boy to be doing while the wedding is about to begin. And all the cater waiters have left except for this dark blue character who has this sixth sense that there must be someone hiding in that closet. So he bolts it open with his feet and he's like, you, get over here, right? So he throws a bottle of lube at me, at uh, good old Giacomo, and he says, I want this whole bottle lathered all over you, he ordered. Then I want you to rub your wet asshole all over my pretty suit, not, not, not a very practical way to hold a cater waitering job. Um, till you feel me prodding your asshole. Don't stop taking it till I'm all the way in you. He threw the bottle at me. I poured the lube all over every part of me in a frenzy. Giacomo! My father was yelling up the stairs to my room. <laughs> my head was spinning. He can't come down right now. Blue had opened the door and was yelling down the stairs. He's getting fucked by a cater waiter. (laughs) Blue slammed the door and locked it. Now show me that pretty little asshole. I want to smell it. I don't know. I, you know, I I thought I'd just try something a little different there, I guess. Um... I felt like I did when I was younger and the brakes gave out on my bike on Devil's Backbone Road, which is in Cincinnati, Ohio, and, you know, every now and then just write what you know. Um, 
What the fuck is going on up there? I heard my father yelling from downstairs. Blue had ripped his tux pants open and was stroking his beautiful manhood. Now that is a word no one ever uses outside of porn literature, right? His balls hung down like ripened fruit from a tree. I could smell his musky sex from across the room. Another thing, a person's sex, you only hear that in the, in the porn stories. His face was stormy and strange. Spread those ass cheeks, he shouted at me, and I wanted to. <laughs> in, in the middle of a hurricane, I was overwhelmed with a weary and almost painful yearning to have his soft skin, his stealthy muscles, his glorious beauty in me, on me, all over me. I pushed my laptop and everything else that was on my desk off it. I bent over the desk, pulling my ass apart and fingering the raw hole. <laughs> he was raging to fuck. I felt that mammoth cock on my leg. He took it and slapped my asshole with it just as he'd done to my face. I'm referring back to a part of the story that apparently I didn't include earlier. <laughs> when the bulging head blew through me like an explosion of blissful pleasure. I'm like, I don't think that's how it works, really. That sounds more like being shot in the anus. I could hear my father pounding on the door, but I didn't give a damn. I moaned out a sigh of ecstasy. You love it, Blue laughed. He sounded so happy. Yes, sir, I shouted back, and he began pumping it in and out, wave after wave of gorgeous ass-feeding. <laughs> that should have been the name of the story uh, I could see the two of us in the mirror of the closet door Blue was riding me like a wild cowboy He was laughing and ramming I love your sweet little ass He shouted over the booming chaos of my father's pounding fist on the door It's yours, sir, my ass is yours We were swimming in pleasure I'm gonna come, he said. So am I, I shouted back. It's pretty good timing, you have to admit. <laughs> Blue grabbed hold of the blinds on the windows for leverage to pound home the final hammering. The blinds came crashing down out of the window frame and neither of us gave a shit. Blue grabbed me by the hair for balance instead and plowed and plowed. Ah! Blue screamed. <laughs> with the sheer out-of-control joy of his lust. I was screaming, too. We were both going 1,000 miles an hour now. Down on the grounds in the backyard, about 100 guests in white pants and designer shawls <laughs> looked up at the perfectly framed action in the second-story window. A Latino gracious feast waiter, wearing only the top of his tuxedo, was fucking the completely nude and oiled son of the house, senseless. We both noticed them all at the same time as we moaned and laughed and shot the last of our cum. I launched... Wait, what did I launch? I... Uh, oh, I launched a splattering wad all over the window. Breathless, we kissed each other, hungry for our newly discovered lust, as Dad pounded away at the door. I no longer have a dime to my name. <laughs> I may even be humble enough today to learn how to wait tables and serve roast duck, but I have something no little prince ever dreamed was possible. I have dark blue. 
Of course, he doesn't have his source of income anymore either. <laughs> but I'm not worried. I get a lot of wonderful things when I do as he says. Um, yes, I uh, have a lot to learn about how actual relationships work. Um, I want to bring up to the stage, now she is almost, there's two people in tonight's show who are almost versions at storytelling. Um, I think she's told a story before at a sort of uh, uh, essay cafe before where you can read it, but this is a, a kind of a different animal here. She has a wonderful blog that you should really check out. It's called Dissociated Press. The URL is thethunderandtheroar.wordpress.com. And she writes about subjects like PTSD and bipolar disorder, rape, people dealing with these really heavy traumatic experiences and the various ways that people can learn more about it and cope. And it's just been a real treat working with her. Uh, yeah, we are going to get, as you can uh, probably guess, a little bit uh, uh, heavier now, a little bit into um, more serious terrain. So please welcome to the stage, Jess Leonard! All right, so yeah, we're gonna get really heavy. Um, I love that Kevin led into that with some gay porn. I thought that was wonderful. And so when the story starts, I'm 17 and I am working my part-time job at KFC in the summer, like you do, when I first lock eyes with Chad across the crowded, busy, steaming hot kitchen in a total fucking John Hughes movie moment, right? <laughs> And we're wearing our fashion disaster uniforms, which consist of a black baseball cap, a red polo shirt, and these grandpa pants that are like tapered and have the pleats down the front. It's 2006, you guys. <laughs> so I've kind of been checking him out for a while. You know, he's this funny guy. He's always joking around with his coworkers who he's made friends with. Everybody seems to like him. And even in this god-awful uniform, I think he is the most handsome man I've ever seen in my life. He's always kind of making jokes about how his family's part Italian, and oh my god, you can totally tell. He's got these high cheekbones that the light is always splattering on, and I'm so jealous. This great wavy black hair, and these hazel eyes that always look sad and sensitive. And I decide right then and there that I, goddammit, I'm going to be the woman that makes him happy, no matter what. I'm going to fix this guy. So, I notice that he's looking back at me, and my stomach does this weird little flip that I've never felt before, and it's scary, and it feels good, and I think I'm gonna puke everywhere, which is bad because there's like a line of 10 people at the front of the store, and they're watching me. Um, but I get through the shift, push it aside, deal with the fact that this is the first time I've ever had a crush on a guy who seems to like me back. Chad and I start getting close, we start hanging out outside of work, and one day I am over at his place, I'm 17, he's 18, he still lives at home, he just graduated from high school and everything. And we're in his room, and he gives me a copy of his senior photo. Again, 2006, that's what you do. You get those little wallet-sized ones from the studio. And I'm standing there in this dying afternoon light, and I'm looking at this photo, and he's got this kind of brooding, scowling, quasi-Marlon Brando thing going on, and it's all quiet. And then he clears his throat, and he says kind of nervously, will you go out with me? 
And it takes me a second to realize that he's asking me to be his girlfriend, right? So I'm like, yes. <laughs> so it's time for me to leave. So he walks me to my car, and I watch him walk back towards his house. He gets about halfway up the driveway. Then he kind of doubles back, and I catch a glimpse of his face, and there's something in his expression in his eyes that I don't like, and my stomach just drops. And he walks up to the window, and he taps on it, so I roll it down, and he looks at me, and he goes... Jess, you know, I don't know if this is such a good idea. I mean, I don't think we should. And boom, like instant tears well up in my eyes because all I've ever known at this point is rejection. And I'm sitting there in the driver's seat shaking, thinking, Jesus Christ, how could I have thought that this really good-looking, funny guy that's liked by everybody could really want to be with me? And he sees how upset I'm getting, so he takes it back. And he goes, no, you know, I think we can make this work. So... We, we decided to give it a shot. And initially, my family really likes him because he makes me happy. I mean, I'm 17. I won't be diagnosed for another seven years, but I am severely bipolar, and I'm coming out of this really long depressive spell. Uh, let that sink in. It's been years since I last felt good. I don't remember the last time I had feelings that didn't involve some shade of I want to die right now. So I'm totally intoxicated by this feeling and this acceptance, even though right from the start, it's not perfect. I mean, he teases me a lot in front of friends. Um, there's a time when we're hanging out with some of our coworkers and people that I go to high school with, and he runs his hand up my leg. I'm wearing a skirt, and I go, oh, this is really nice. You know, we're going places. He's showing me affection in front of other people. This is what is supposed to happen. And he touches the back of my right thigh, and he says, babe, did you forget to shave? Are you turning into a werewolf? And everyone laughs, and I'm mortified. And I go, uh, yeah, I guess. But it's really not funny, but I brush it aside. Because, you know, beauty covers everything at this point. <laughs> so we go on like that for a while. We start getting in these weird little fights, kind of, uh, right away. Like, he gets jealous, basically. At first, it's not directed toward me. He'll say things like, oh, I saw the way Tim, our coworker, is looking at you. I see how he looks at other girls. I want you to be careful around him. I care about you. And I freak out. I start crying. I think I've done something wrong, and I need to fix this because I don't want this feeling to go away. It's not perfect, but it's the best thing I've ever known. So... I start doing whatever I can think of to do to make him happy, because that is what's important. The jealousy gets worse from there. We break up, and we get back together a whole bunch of times. We have this one fight, and he comes over to my grandma's house, where I live. Um, my grandma and my aunt raised me. Story for another day. And, <laughs> and we're lying on the couch in her basement, and he brushes my hair away from my face. We just had a fight. I'm crying, and he dries my, my cheeks, and he says, your eyes are so beautiful. They're like glaciers, and when you cry, the glacier melts, which is the height of romance to a 17-year-old who's never, you know. <laughs> Six months in, we start having sex. It's not great. Uh, the first time, I mean, it's in January, it's fucking freezing in my room, my head's hanging halfway off my bed, and he cannot figure out how to penetrate me, so I have to reach down and help him out. And, disclaimer, I love sex, but with Chad, it was fucking awful. Um, <laughs> so, just the, the clinical friction of the condom and the stretching and the fact that he didn't look at my face or say anything the entire time I felt like I was something he was masturbating into, basically. But 
in my head this entire time, I'm like, oh my God, this is going to like cement the relationship. You know, this is a big step. So I don't really pay much notice that uh, he doesn't really say anything even after we're done. Or when I walk him to the door and I say, I love you, and I give him a hug, he doesn't say anything back. Or when he looks at me, something in his eyes has changed and it looks like all the humanity has just fallen away. I don't even have a name for what's left when he looks at me. So we stay together. Things kind of even out for a while, but they're never quite the same. That warmth that we kind of had in the moments when he wasn't teasing me or being crazy jealous, it never comes back. His mother continues to be kind of cold to me. Like, when we first met, she seemed like she liked me. One of the first things she said was, hi. She introduced herself and said, oh, Chad and I are born-again Christians. We're Baptists. And I go, oh, that's, that's pretty cool. You know, my family's not religious, but... And the second I say, we're not religious, something changes in her face toward me, and I can never get that warmth back either. And this is kind of problematic because Chad and I get in another fight, again, probably over a coworker or something, a week later. I am sitting in their living room on the battered white leather couch. He has two Boston Terriers that are going just batshit, jumping up on me. He is pacing back and forth, up and down this hallway between the living room and his bedroom, and I cannot get him to calm down. He's not speaking in full sentences. The fragments that I'm catching are either accusatory, calling me a whore, accusing me of horrible things that I haven't even thought of, let alone did, or... It's just stony silence. And um, he finally comes close enough to me where I can see his expression clearly, but I can't reach out and touch him and comfort him. And I'm panicking. I'm looking around this room at all this lighthouse-themed paraphernalia that his mother has collected, as if that's going to give me the fucking answer of how to fix what's going on. And um, he looks at me and he says, my mother was right. How did you know how to do all that stuff? She's right, you're a whore. And I will never forget the words he says next. He says, giving you my virginity was the biggest mistake of my life. Right? (laughs) So we eventually patch it up and I'm so happy because, oh my God, I was terrified that he was gonna stop caring about me. And you know, he says he loves me even if he doesn't really show it in the right way. And so we keep going and Around this time, I start to notice a few things. The first is that I've always got this pain right here, pelvic pain. And a couple weeks after we start having sex, I go into my bedroom and I close the door and I kind of hunker down so no one will hear me on the phone because my family's not really sex positive and oh my God, if they knew I was having sex under their roof, they would flip shit. And I place a call to the urgent care clinic at the hospital in my hometown. And I talk to the nurse and I tell her what's going on and she goes, it sounds like you've got maybe a bruised cervix. Like, have you been having rough sex? And in my head I'm like, lady, that's all I ever have. But at this point, it's still a point of pride because you know, rough means it's urgent, which means I'm super desirable, right? I don't know any better. And she goes, take a Tylenol and just take it easy. So, you know, you do what you have to do. He's always been kind of religious, but he starts getting a little bit weird about it. The main thing is whenever I want to have sex or fool around and he doesn't, he starts throwing words like whore around and goes, Jessica, why do you have to be so sexual all the time? And I refer to Jessica as my dead name. I haven't used it since I was 17 because it's so incredibly triggering. Nothing good ever happened after I heard my full name. 
He tells me things like, Jesus doesn't like what we're doing. My mother doesn't like this. I'm making God sad, and he's depressed all the time. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm causing him to turn against his religion. I'm this horrible person. I have to fix this. So sex life keeps going, doesn't get any better. He, he gets to the point where not only will he not look me in the face at any point, he will only fuck me from behind, usually when I'm bent over the roll-top desk in my bedroom, which is fine at this point because I can put my hand up like this and press my face into my arm and I get the pattern from the wood on my forearm but it's okay because he can't see my face and he can't tell he's hurting me or that he's being too rough and I'm afraid to tell him to stop because I don't know what's gonna happen. He's been violent physically before, not in the whole like beating the shit out of me way, but in weird little ways that I don't even realize are physical abuse until almost a decade later. That's how we do it. And we go on like this until, I remember the date exactly. It was May 14th, 2008, I was 19 years old. It was a week after his 20th birthday and he had gone to his, his excuse me, his cousins, his husbands, <laughs> you know other problems. <laughs> he went to his cousin's graduation party and I wasn't allowed to go. I was usually excluded from family events because his cousins might hit on me and he wants to protect me. So I'm sitting at home. There's a huge storm. There's a blackout. So I take a candle and I sit down on the floor of my bedroom with my back pressed to the mattress and I stare into the flame and I, I don't even know what prompted this, but I get this surge of just strength and think, what am I doing? So I walk across the hall to my aunt's bedroom where she's lying in bed reading a romance novel and I sit down and I go, Joe, I don't, I don't think I want to be with Chad anymore. And she just looks up and doesn't know what to say and she just kind of pats my arm and says, that's okay, you know, when are, when are you going to tell him? So I go sit in the back bedroom and I'm sitting at the desk with computer and everything, just waiting for him to call on his way home from this party because I have something I need to tell him. And he calls, and he acts like nothing's normal. Oh, hey, babe, what's up? And I'm like, Chad, I don't want to do this anymore. And he's like, what do you mean? And his voice instantly changes in a way that makes me tense. But this time, I'm tense, but I'm, I have this resolve that I've never experienced before. And I say the word abuse for the first time. I say, Chad, you've been really abusive. I can't do this. This isn't healthy. I'm not happy. And he loses it. He's driving at this point across the bridge from my city to where he lives, which is in the neighboring state. It's like a 15-minute drive. And he threatens to drive off the bridge. And this is not the first time I've tried to break up with him and he's made suicide threats. But this time I don't talk him down. I say, then do it. Just fucking do it. And he doesn't do it because he continues to make my life a living hell. And he sends me text messages and voicemails saying things like, oh, I started smoking and drinking and I'm hurting myself. So I do him one better. I call his mom and his dad, who are divorced, and I tell them what their baby has been up to. <laughs> And then I try to move on with my life. I'm going to college at this point. I'm entering my sophomore year. I meet someone new. And I've forgotten about it until I'm in a writing workshop class. And ironically, I'm writing about Chad and some of the fucked up shit he used to do to me, uh, some of which you've heard tonight. And my best friend, Will, also a writer who could not be here tonight, comes up to me after class and he goes, 
You know Chad's back on campus? He lives in my dorm. I just saw him the other day. He's in the art program, which I had left a semester before to take up English and writing. And I say, whoa, what the fuck? Back up. At this point, I got this kind of nervous energy excitement, like it hasn't sunk in that this might actually be a real threat. So I go up to my professor after class, and she goes, go talk to the dean. You need to like get something in place so she knows that this guy is on campus. And uh, so I do that. And the restraining order that they give me amounts to basically, well, we're going to make sure Chad can enroll in any of your classes with you. But it doesn't change the fact that he's mean-mugging the shit out of my friends and my family, and they are terrified for me at this point. I have zero fucks left to give. I don't care. Um, but I'm annoyed because there are three other colleges in town, including a Bible college, two other public universities, and a community college. And it's like, why here, you know? So... I eventually, when I'm 23, move up to Wisconsin because I realize if I don't get the fuck out of my hometown, I'm never going to. I'm sitting in my apartment late at night. By this point, I'm married, which is also an unhappy relationship. I mean, at the four-month mark, it became totally sexless and pretty much loveless. And, you know, I just deal with it because I think this is the best I'm ever going to get. I've got all these problems. I've got all this baggage. What man is going to want to put up with this? So I'm sitting on the floor of my living room next to an open window. It's January. I'm freezing my ass off. I'm wearing three sweaters, and I'm chain-smoking Nat Sherman Fantasias, the fancy cigarettes with the, yeah, like Crayolas for adults. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm lighting up a blue one, and I'm browsing Tumblr like you do. And I stumble upon this post about something called coercive rape. And it feels, again, that old sensation like someone slipped my belly and stuffed it with hot coals and I cannot breathe because the words I'm reading are exactly what was done to me. And I say done to me, not happened, because that shit doesn't just happen. And I realize for the first time that unlike what I've been taught, rape isn't just when you say no and someone fucks you without your consent. Rape is when you're afraid to say no and you can't tell your partner what's going on in your head because you're terrified of them. And I start seeing yet another therapist because my insurance is changing a whole bunch and I have to switch providers. And I'm telling my therapist about all this and I find myself taking on classic sexual abuse victim posture, you know, closing in physically, hunching over and hiding my body. And my therapist, Susan, she leans forward and kind of gets on eye level with me and she says, Jess, that stuff with Chad wasn't your fault. This isn't your shame. You don't have to carry it anymore. And that's the same thing that I tell myself in the mirror every day because it's the only thing some days that brings me any goddamn peace. But my life has changed in a really good way. Um, my divorce from that husband and that loveless, sexless marriage where I never felt valued was final last Thursday. <laughs> And I've learned a few things. I've learned I don't have to settle, that I don't need to apologize for what I think is wrong with me because it's part of my story. And I might be crazy, but I'm never going to be boring. <laughs> and um, I started seeing this great guy about eight months ago, and we're no longer adulterers, which is awesome. Uh, <laughs> Paul is sitting right there, actually. Let's give him a hand. different now is that I feel loved and valued. I don't have to apologize for who I am. And even though 
Sometimes it's like watching my heart kind of walk around on the outside of my body when I look at him. I'm not scared that it's going anywhere. I know it's not going anywhere. And uh, in a weird way, this whole business with Chad and my ex-husband, it just taught me so many things that I don't know I would have learned any other way. So when I used to look back at my time with Chad, the two years between ages 17 and 19, I used to think, God damn, that was a waste. I've realized now it's not a waste. Everything that's happened to me has made me who I am, and it's taught me things that, I mean, I just think that's a really important thing to come to terms with, and it's helped me make my peace. And I'm just so glad that I could share this with you guys. This is the first time I've told anyone those gory details, and uh, thank you so much. Jess Leonard! Awesome. That, it's a, kind of amazing that that's uh, the first time she's told a story like that on stage before. That's awesome. Um, yeah, I, you know, a theme that comes up in stories so very often, stories about relationships that never ceases to, like, fascinate me, you know, because when you listen to relationship stories, you can start to think, oh, have I ever behaved that way before? Or had, had my own partner ever behaved that way? And the thing that pops up so often is when one partner says to another, I'm doing something, but you can't. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like that part in the story where he's like, I slept with you, but you slept with me. You're a whore. It's like, it doesn't work that way. Also, it really struck me when Jess first shared the story where the guy said to her that um, their relationship was probably depressing Jesus. I, I'm so thankful that we don't literally have to worry about whether our, rela- you know, our, our relationships are entertaining or not to Jesus. Jesus, I think, had a heck of a lot on his mind. Seemed like a rather stormy and unpredictable character. It would be kind of like you have to make sure that your relationship is okay with Bob Dylan. You know, like, oh, fuck. I don't know what the fuck Bob Dylan is thinking. All right, let me bring our next storyteller to the stage. He is another person who works at Comedy Sports. Uh, He is also in a comedy duo called Coyote Butler. And he has this very hilarious sounding podcast called Yeah Bro. It's the Yeah Bro podcast. It's straight guys talking about gay things with Jacob. Also, Jacob talks a lot about his father in this story and the latest episode of the Yabro uh, podcast is an interview between Jacob and his father. Please welcome the stage, Jacob D. Bach! It was November 4th, 2014 when my life changed drastically. Uh, It was about 11.30 in the morning when suddenly I thought a car ran into my house so that somebody could rob us. Uh, I'm living with my parents at the time, and uh, I never heard anything like this. It was the loudest sudden noise I've ever had happen in my life, and it was immediately followed by a scream from my mom. And I ran out of my room, 
where I, I went into the living room and we have this perfectly square living room, two couches and a television that frame everything perfectly. The morning sun was coming in on a cold day, sunny cold day, you know, Wisconsin. <laughs> where I found my dad face down in a pile of blood. Plastic was covering half of him because we were getting ready for the winter. And uh, he was still breathing, but it was breathing his last few breaths. I know that, not because it was cold and I could see his breath in the air, but I knew that because there was bubbles happening in the blood. And he was completely unresponsive to anything that we were doing. My mom looked at me and said, oh my God, what the fuck do we do? What's going on? What are we going to do? And I was like, call 911. We have to call 911. So she gets on the phone. She runs in the other room. And that's when I took my dad by his shoulders from the back and I flipped him over. That was the first time I've ever experienced dead weight, true dead weight in my life. So I have my dad on his back. And my dad, uh, my dad's from Eastern European descent, so he has very olive complexion. You know, it depends on the time of year. Either he looks black or Hispanic or Middle Eastern or Eastern European, depending on if it's fall, winter, spring, or summer. It makes flying difficult. And <laughs> at this point, though, he didn't look like any of those. He, he was completely pale. He had no color left in him. And I opened his eye, and it was kind of like a blind dog where it was uh, filtered over, and there was nothing in it. And I thought he was having a stroke, so I opened up his mouth and I pulled out his tongue. And when I held his tongue, I realized he wasn't having a stroke because it was ice cold. But his mouth was covered in blood. And I didn't know what was happening, but for some reason in that moment, my emotions ran dry and I didn't have anything in me left to do but just act on that moment. And that's when I started doing compressions on him. Uh, I started giving him CPR. When I was trained in CPR, I was told to do 12 compressions and two breaths. I don't know when that was because every doctor since has told me that's never been a thing. <laughs> but so I'm going and I'm going as hard as I can and I'm yelling at him, fuck you, Greg. This is not how you die. You are Greg Bach. Fuck you. This is not how you go. Now, I, I call my parents by their names a lot. I call them Greg and Mary a lot. The reason being is because I'm an only child. And the two people that I grew up with the most in my life are my mom and my dad. I a lot of times don't look at them like my mom and my dad, but I look at them like my best friends. So I call them Greg and Mary for a reason, because when you call somebody mom and dad, or when somebody calls you son, they're giving you this title, and that's what you exist with in their head. But when you call somebody their name, you're calling somebody the story behind them, the experience that they have had in life. The guy who skied the world-class cross-country skiing race, the Berkey Biner. The woman who was a pool shark and met my dad that way. The, the man who convinced me to go fishing one time at summer camp and led me through the woods to a lake that I've been to a million times, but somehow found this new spot. The woman that says things so gently and carefully, but with such confidence that it can't help but influence you. That's what you say when you call somebody their name. So my mom's on the phone with 911, and she 
she says to me, the, the lady on the phone just said only do compressions. And it wasn't until two weeks later when my neighbor, who's a firefighter, told me he listened to the call. And he heard me say, you can tell that cunt to shut the fuck up. I'm going to do whatever I want. <laughs> so I continue compressions. I continue compressions for 10 minutes straight, waiting for the paramedics to show up. And the thoughts going through my head aren't, I'm so tired, I can't do this anymore. The only thoughts going through my head are, am I doing this right? Is this what, is this what needs to be done? They tell you you're going to break ribs and that you're going to feel it when you're giving compressions. However, I didn't feel that. I didn't feel anything. I was just in the moment. So I'm giving my dad 12 compressions, two breaths, when finally I feel a pat on my back and it's a police officer that has shown up. And he takes over for the next minute. So now we're into 11 minutes before the paramedics get there. After a minute, the paramedics show up and they take over and this is when all hell breaks loose in our home. That perfectly framed living room that we have with the sunlight coming in has now turned into utter anarchy. It's just chaos everywhere. And they've ushered us into our dining room where we can't see anything, but my mom is sitting on the dining room uh, next to the dining room table. She was on the dining room table to be insane. She was next to the dining room table and she had her hand on her face and I'm, I'm kneeling next to her and the cop is behind her with, her hand, with his hand on her shoulder and she's going, I don't know what we're going to do without him. I can't do this. He, th this is our world and it's true. He is our world. Honestly, our family couldn't exist without us three. We're a perfect triangle, the, the, the strongest shape. That's when I decide to go back in the room. And the first paramedic looks at me and he's like, you can't watch this. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I just did what you're doing. And I, I realize now why. Because when you watch somebody give compressions, it's an insane thing to watch. Because they don't have, they don't give a fuck. Like, they're just going as hard as they can. And his body is lifting up every time that they push down. And it's flopping back down. And finally, they get out the pads. And I'm watching that happen. I go back in the other room. And I'm trying to console my mom. And that's when we hear the thing that you don't want to hear. And that is, we have to beg him. Turns out that it's not a body bag. It's that thing they put on somebody's mouth. So they don't have to do mouth to mouth. Which, what a bunch of assholes. Like, they should name it something else. Because they know we're listening. And it, we both think the same fucking thing. We look at each other's eyes and we're like, what the fuck? We thought this was going to be fine. Like, we thought you guys were professionals. And finally, they say, we have a pulse. And that's when they get him onto a stretcher. And they were like, okay, we're going to get you two in the ambulance. And I was like, fuck, just take her. Just go. And they rush and they leave. And I'm left in the house by myself with my small dog and the police officer. Paramedics make a mess of your house, but you're left there to clean it up by yourself. So now the room that I take comfort in, the living room, that's literally the name of the room, the living room, the place in which you live, the place that you're supposed to feel comfortable is completely covered in, in plastic and w weird coverings of things. And there's random metal pieces. And I'm picking all this shit up and I, I'm throwing it away. And there's this pool of blood on the ground and I start to wipe it up. And I feel like a broken housewife for some reason. I'm just on the floor on my hands and knees wiping up my dad's blood. And that's when the emotion hits me for the first time. 
That's when I feel the oh fuck feeling. Oh fuck, this is actually happening. My dad's the healthiest person that we know. He ran marathons. He skied the Berkebiner. They go up north as much as they can, and he hauls trees out of the woods. How can this happen to him? And I'm left by myself, and that's when the police officer uh, comes over to me, and he hands me his car, and he said, "If if you need anything, just call. I never called him, but that's what I needed in that moment. I needed somebody to say, if you need anything, just call me. So I go and I put on jeans because even in a crisis, I'm not going outside in sweatpants. And I get in my car. (laughs) Photos might be taken. And I get in my car and I'm driving to the hospital. I'm going as fast as I can. And that's when they rush me in to the ER waiting room where I find my mom. And the doctor comes in and he goes, uh, this is your chance now to say something to him. Because we're about to send him up to surgery. But this might not go. We don't know what's happening until we get in there. We're a tight family. We're friends. It's Mary, Greg, and Jacob. That's how we operate. And we didn't say... We, we didn't say anything except for see you soon because we knew that we were going to see him again. That's, that's what we say. We don't say goodbye. That's, that's not a thing that I've ever said to my parents. I've never said goodbye or bye. It's just see you soon. And they usher us up to the next waiting room and an hour goes by and family shows up. Another hour goes by and my best friend shows up. She takes me back home and, you know, I, I put on different clothes and we get something to eat and then I come back. And it wasn't until I used the bathroom at the hospital did I realize that I was still covered in blood on my mouth. And I have this comparativeness thing now where every time that somebody complains about things every time that somebody complains about a fucking cup that doesn't say Merry Christmas or every time every time that somebody complains about traditional marriage or every time that somebody complains that their toast didn't turn out the way that it wanted to it's like fuck you because you're not covered in your dad's blood that is what you have to think about what is the worst fucking thing that's happened in your life and are you at that moment no You're not. So a week goes by, and they put my dad into a medicated coma, medicated paralysis, blood thinners, and a blood pump. He has two stents in his heart, and this is somebody that I've never seen before. The the doctor pulled my mom and me aside, and he said, you know, he, he has his heart, it's functioning, but you might not be getting back the man that you knew. He was like, fuck that. We know that we'll be getting him back because he has way too strong of a personality not to. So all of a sudden, four days goes by, and they slowly start to take him out of hypothermia. That's another thing they did. They slow the body down. They slowly start to take him out, and around two in the morning on the fourth day is when he finally opens his eyes for the first time, and my, my aunt and my uncle are there. And so the next day we go up, and uh, you know the best thing that he can do is pat me on the hand. And a couple days goes by, and he's he's able to start talking. And on that last day, it was like the scene from The Walking Dead, the first episode, when my dad got up from his hospital bed and kind of wandered into the hallway, like, "What the fuck is going on right now?" <laughs> and he found himself, and they were like, "This is what happened." 
Let's fast forward a year. This happened a year ago this past week. He's, he's better than ever. And my, my family, we learned something from this. It takes a tragedy sometimes to just say, fuck it and do whatever you love. My parents are traveling now. You know, they're, they're investing their times and things that they want. We go hiking. We do things as a family. They do things as a couple. I've stopped putting things off to go and have hobbies. But it, it takes something like that to finally just say, fuck it and realize that the things in your life matter. You know, it's just like we were talking about before. Today, today is the day. This is the time that you finally take a risk. This is the time that you finally say fuck it. Um, uh, my parents are in the front row right here. Um, seriously though, Go, go learn CPR because it's super important. Thank you all very much. Thank you. <laughs> Take a mug! <laughs> awesome. Great to have you here, Mr. Bach. <laughs> All righty, folks, we have just one last story for tonight. One last story. Um, it's been a heck of a, an emotional experience uh, helping him prepare this story. Jeffrey is another person who has almost never quite done this sort of thing before, and I always say that, you know, those people are very precious to us with risk uh, because cause you can feel that a person really is taking a risk when they're <coughs> telling a story for, like this for the first time. So please welcome to the stage Jeffrey Barsoom! A little bit taller, right? How you guys doing tonight? That's good. That's good. Let's see if we can change that, huh? <laughs> Just kidding. So, I met this girl Sally in history class in high school. I used to sleep during history class all the time uh, until I started talking to her. She sat in front of me. And she was just as disinterested in history class as I was. So we would, we would tell each other jokes and, and pass each other notes and snicker in the back class, you know, and the teacher would be like, you know, you need to shut up, this is class, and we didn't. Um, <laughs> so me and her, we flirted during high school for years. Uh, for example, I would get called to the principal's office all the time. I wasn't a bad kid, but uh, I had this job in the morning. It was like this four-hour venture, so I was always late to school, and if you're late to school, you get detention, right? So the problem with detention is that detention is after school. And I had a job after school too, so I'd often miss that, which led to more detention. So, so, so almost every day, you know, you hear on the intercom, Jeff Barsoon, please come to the principal's office. And almost every day, I would run into Sally. It was the strangest thing. And she'd be like, oh, hey, Jeff, how's it going? You know, I'd be like, it's good, funny seeing you here. She's like, yeah, yeah, funny, isn't it? Well, bye, have a good one. And I would, I would walk into the principal's office with this like ear-to-ear -ear smirk on my face, right? And the principal would be like, oh, you think this is funny? You think detention is funny? 
well, well, you can have some more detention. And I didn't. I didn't think it was funny. I was just really happy because I just saw Sally. She later confessed to me that whenever she heard my name on the intercom, she would ask for a bathroom pass to go meet me because that was her chance during the day to see me. Yeah, I know. It was really sweet, right? Um, so so we, we did this back and forth for a long time. So, so like another example is, um, you know, one time she walked up to me and she's like, so hey, Jeff, I saw, saw you were talking to those two girls in gym class the other day. So I just want you to know, you know, those two girls are hoes, and if you fuck them, your dick will fall right off, Jeff, just right off. And I'm like, why are you so concerned about my dick? What, you wanna, you wanna talk about it? Like, I'm here for you, you know, you can share this with me. So we were, we were a funny act, right? But, uh, you know, we were always there for each other when, when things got bad for us. One time I had to go to the emergency room because my lung collapsed, and I was fine. She heard about it. I didn't even tell her. She just heard through the grapevine. And she comes up to me and she's like, Jeff, you know, I just want you to know you're, you're the greatest guy in the whole world and I'm glad you're okay. And obviously, you know, if you need a lung, you can have one of mine. <laughs> so now don't go dying on me or I will fucking kill you. Okay, <laughs> love you. Bye. And that was Sal. That was who she was and I, I loved her for it. Or when she was going through a tough time, like there was this one time when her mother disappeared and Sal was worried and didn't know where she was. Nobody knew where she was. So she was great at being there for me, right? Like she always knew the right thing to say and I was shit at it. Um, all I knew how to do was to be there, right? So I would just be there and sometimes we just sit there in silence and, and I'd say, do you want to talk about it? She didn't want to talk about it. Sal never wanted to talk about the bad things. Do you want to just sit here? And that's, that's what we did. We just sit there. Sal's mom never did come home. Uh, a couple of months went by and, and the landlord came and, and evicted her because nobody had paid rent in a while and nobody knew what happened to her. She never showed up in the news, she never showed up in the obituaries. So then she went to go live with her grandmother. And I remember her grandmother, she said something like, oh yeah, your mom, she's probably you know, on drugs or dead in an alleyway somewhere. And I remember Sal, she snapped back and she said, don't you dare, don't you ever say anything bad about my mother ever again. But that was really, that was really it. She just kind of moved on with life. You know, Sal, she was tough as nails. I don't know how she did it, but, you know, eventually she just came back to school and she never talked about it. And she just started living life like this had never happened to her. So anyway, after high school, you know, things got really serious between us. Uh, we started talking about the future, you know, having kids, what would we name our kids. You know, she would drop me these really subtle hints like, if you ever go ring shopping, I am a size six, and I really want a princess cut diamond, you know, really subtle. <laughs> so I did, I did go ring shopping, right? I, I, I didn't have a lot of money, so I bought this $100 promise ring. It was a size six, and it had a princess cut diamond on it. It was really tiny, but the guy promised me it was a princess cut diamond. So, really cheesy, right? So I, so I, I pour each of us a glass of wine, I put the ring in the wine glass, you know, and I'm like, like, hey Sal, you want some wine? She's like, yeah, I'm not really thirsty. I'm like, have the fucking wine, you know? <laughs> She's like, okay, fine, Jesus. Uh, so she starts drinking it, and I'm like, do you know something's, I think something's in your wine glass. She looks down, I'm like, are you fucking serious? So, so she's like, I'll be right back, right? She calls her best friend in the whole world, right? And like, I can't hear exactly what's going on in this conversation, but I can hear snippets like, 
Like, yeah, can you believe that? Yeah, in the fucking wine glass. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how this is going to go, right? So she comes back, and she looks at me with this, like, beautiful smile, you know? And she says, yes. Now, are you going to put the ring on me, you fucking dumbass, or what? You know? I'm like, yeah, yeah. So, so that was it. We were, we were engaged. So if we're going to build a life together, you know, we, we were both working to make money and try and make that happen. I started going to school and working a lot of hours, and, and she had this job as a secretary in the city. And I remember one day I came home from work, and Sal comes up to me. She's like, guess what? I'm like, what? She's like, you won't believe what happened to me today. I was walking home from work, and I, I looked down an alleyway, and I see my mother. And I'm like, oh, Jesus Christ, this is horrible. What am I going to do to cheer her up? But then she keeps going. She's like, isn't that great? She, I found her. She's fine. And, you know, she said she's staying at this motel, and, and we can hang out tomorrow. And I'm like, whoa, whoa hold on a second. Back up. What, where has she been all these years? And then Sal says, oh, I don't know. She said she was, like, smoking crack, and she was, like, staying with this guy and then staying with that guy or whatever. But anyway, she's fine, and we're going to hang out tomorrow. Isn't that great? You know, Sal, Sal could never say anything bad about her mother, but it was really easy to piece together what had happened. Sal's mother was a recovering drug addict, and she'd been in recovery for, for most of Sal's life until one day she fell off the wagon, and that's when she disappeared. And she was still off that wagon, you know, smoking crack and, and you know, having sex for money to buy the crack and a place to stay, and that was her life now. So, you know, I'm worried. You know, like, you're going you're gonna to start hanging out with her in these seedy places, but see, the thing was, I knew better. I knew better than to get in the way of Sal and her mother. You know, Sal wasn't passionate about a lot of things. You could probably count the things that she cared about on one hand. And one of those things was me, and the other one was her mother. And, and Sal was tough as nails, like I mentioned before. So, you know, she knew what she was getting into, and she clearly didn't care. So who was I to stop her, right? So I just, I said, yeah. Yeah, that is great. You know, I, I'm, I'm really happy that she's okay. You know, I, I, you know. Tell me how it goes when you hang out with her tomorrow. So Sal still did start hanging out with her mother. And, you know, they'd hang out in these seedy places like crack houses and, and shady motels. And when I had time, I would go with them. Sal's mom was a fun lady, you know. I could tell where, she, where Sal got a lot of what she had, you know. She was a lot of fun. She had this great laugh, right? And so we would, we would sit around, and she would get high, and, and me and Sal would, like, have a drink or something, and we'd just bullshit about life. And when you saw the two of them together you could feel why Sal loved her unconditionally, no matter what, and why Sal's mother loved her right back. You know, some people would probably think that, that Sal was spending this time with her mother to help her get back on track, you know, to help get her life back together. But I am positive that, that as far as Sal was concerned, nothing was wrong with her mother. You know, if, if smoking crack and staying in shady motels made her mother happy, then that's all that mattered. So one day... Uh, I come home from work, and Sal isn't home. You know, I call her grandmother, and she doesn't know where she is. I call her best friend, and she doesn't know where she is. I call her father, who she hasn't even talked to in years, and he doesn't know where she is. I was grasping at straws at this point, and I get really worried. But I think, okay, maybe she's just late. She'll come home in the morning. I go to sleep, and in the morning, she's not there. You know, I call the police. They're like, oh, you know, tell us what happened. And I say, yeah, you know, she's hanging out with her mother, who's a drug addict. And they kind of lose interest. They're kind of like... Oh, it's one of these, kid. You know, if, if we hear from her, we'll let you know. So two weeks goes by, and I'm starting to think the worst, you know? Like, I'm never going to see her again. So at about 2 in the morning that night, 
She walks in the door, crying her eyes out, and she runs over to me. Uh, I was sleeping. She woke me up, and she holds on to me really tight. She's crying. She says, Jeff, Jeff, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I'm so, so sorry. And I'm, I'm like, sorry for what? I, I've been worried sick. Where have you been? Says, I've been spending the last two weeks smoking crack with my mother and having sex with some guy. I mean, how do you react to something like that, right? I, I fell to the ground, leaning against the wall, staring at the wall in front of me with this blank expression on my face. And my mind is just as blank. And she's still holding on to me. You know, Jeff, please say something. And I just sit there in silence for like five minutes until I finally say, get out. Get your shit and go. And so I was like, Jeff, please, I understand if you never want to see me again, but please, can I just, can I just spend one more night with you? Just one more night with you and I promise you'll never see me again. I'm like, no, you need, you need to go. You need to get out right now. And Sal did. She, she packed her shit and she left. And I just sat there with this blank expression on my face, thoughtless. I sat there, I sat there all night. I didn't go to sleep. I sat there until morning. And sometime around late morning, that's when my brain started ticking again. And that's when I realized I might have made a huge mistake. So I spent all day looking for her, and I find her, and she's at her grandmother's. And, and she opens the door. She's all dolled up, like she's going somewhere. I say, Sal, listen, I, I'm, I'm sorry for the way I reacted. Like, you know, just, just come home. We'll, we'll, we'll work through this. We can get past this together. You know, please just come with me and we'll go home. We'll talk about it. And Sal has this dead look in her eyes. And she just looks at me and she says, no, Jeff, I have to go somewhere. I'm leaving now. I'm like, where, where are you going? It's like, I'm going to where I've been for the past two weeks. Goodbye, Jeff. She closes the door. So the next couple of weeks are, are haze. I, I spent most of it drunk, day and night because it helped the pain go away. You know, people always talk about, oh, you know, oh, my heart hurts and I'm heartbroken. People say that because it's true. There was this literal searing pain in my heart, the thing that pumps blood through my body, and it hurt like a bitch, and drinking helped that pain go away. I still went to work because I needed the money, but I did just enough not to get fired. I stopped going to school because what's the point? A few weeks later, I get a call from her. She says, Jeff, I know you probably don't want to talk to me, but I have to tell you something. I'm pregnant, and I don't know who the baby belongs to, but it's probably yours. And in that moment, all the sadness and heartache that I'd been feeling instantly turned into anger and hatred. I probably didn't know why at the time, but looking back, it was because... I realized that this person that now just the very thought of caused me all this pain was somebody I was going to have to raise a child with and deal with for the rest of my life. And I didn't know if I could deal with that. And hating her was so much easier than feeling that pain all day, every day. And so I hated her. But I said, hey, listen, you know, I'll, I'll be there for you, you know, while you're, while you're carrying this child. I'll, I'll get you what you need. If you need to go to doctor's appointments, I'll take you. If you need food, I'll get it for you. And when the baby's born, if it's mine, I promise I will take care of that child. And I did those things. You know, if she needed food, I got it for her. If she needed to go to the doctor, I took her there. 
I remember we went to uh, the ultrasound appointment where you get to find out the sex of the baby, who was a boy. She wanted to name him Christopher. And at that moment, you know, I don't know, I'd been miserable with the whole process, but when I saw that baby moving around in there, I thought, you know, maybe it wouldn't be so bad to be a dad, right? So a few weeks after that, I'm at work and I get another call from her. And she says, she's crying, she says, Jeff, I'm going to the clinic, I'm gonna get an abortion, and there's nothing you can do to stop me. And when she says that, I think to myself, yes, thank God. When she said she was going to the abortion clinic, right, I thought, please, God, don't let me say anything to convince her otherwise. If she goes there and kills that fucking baby, then I never have to talk to her ever again for the rest of my life. And I said something like, you know, hey, I, I support you with whatever you want to do. It's your decision. And that was it. She hung up the phone and she went to the, to the abortion clinic. And, and I felt relieved. I felt great, like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders. And I went back into work, you know, feeling just fine, ready to take on the day. A couple hours goes by. And all of a sudden, I feel really strange. Like, like it was like, like nauseous. But it wasn't my stomach that wanted to throw up. It was my heart. I know that sounds kind of strange, but it's the best way that I can describe it. And at that moment, I couldn't be at work around work people doing work things. I just had to go. And I remember my boss, he's screaming back to me as I'm walking out of the door, Jeff, you can't just fucking leave. It's, it's the lunch rush. If you fucking walk out that door, you're fired. And I don't even remember if I said anything back to him. I might, I might have said, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be right back. Or I might not have said anything at all. All I remember is I got into my car and I drove two blocks down the street to a supermarket parking lot and I parked and I cried like a baby for like an hour and I have no idea why. Like to this day, I could not definitively tell you why I was crying that day. So ironic as it is, you know, I thought I'd never have to see Sal again but I saw her a lot after that. See, shortly after this began some of the darkest years of my life, some related to this whole ordeal and some not. And whenever I was going through something terrible, Sal was always there to offer me a helping hand and I would take it. For example, uh, there, was, there was a period of time when I didn't have a place to stay. Uh, so I would park in service exits off the New Jersey Turnpike and sleep there. You know, $1.50 for a place to stay, you can't beat that, right? So when Sal heard about this, she insisted that I stay with her. And where she was sleeping at the time, she was sleeping on a couch. Uh, she insisted that I take the couch. She made me dinner, and she tucked me in, and she gave me her favorite pillow. And she slept on the chair, and she let me watch TV until I passed out. And she knew I had to be up at 6.30 in the morning to go to work. Uh, so she was up before me with breakfast ready and a bottle of Pepto-Bismol because she knew that, that everything I had been going through had given me ulcers and I spent the first 20 minutes of every morning throwing up. Or there was this other time where, you know, she heard I was really depressed, so she drove six hours to come and see me. I didn't even ask her to, she just did. And I remember that night. She never really asked for anything in return. But I remember this night she asked, she, she comes to me and she, she's crying, right? And she, she holds me really tight and she says, Jeff, remember when I got that abortion? You know, I'm, I really wish I hadn't because I, I really wish we'd gotten the chance to raise a family together. And I start to cry 
you know, because because I feel the same way, and, and I'm holding her tightly. And then she asks me. She says, "Jeff, do you think, do you think there's even a chance, a possibility that maybe one one day in the future we could be together again?" And I I really think about it. I do. I really think about it. But see, the thing is, so when you're going through something terrible, your mind does things to help you deal with it. So when all of this started, my mind turned this switch off, this, this switch that, that let me get really close to people. And I was thankful for that. I needed that to get by. It was very helpful for me to be able to disassociate myself from everything going on around me. And here, here I'm feeling all of this love for this girl holding me tightly. But the problem is that that love still comes with all this searing pain in my chest. And my life's in shambles right now, you know? I, I don't think I can deal with this pain. I might not make it through the week. I might not even make it to tomorrow. And I need that switch to be off right now. And, and I tell her, I hold her tight. I'm crying. I say, you know, Sal, I'm really sorry. But the answer is no. So this, this is all years ago. Uh, Sal's doing okay now. Um, She's not a drug addict. She didn't turn out to be a drug addict like her mother. Sometimes I even wonder if her helping me with my troubles was how she got through her troubles. She's married now. She has three kids, the first of which is named Christopher. She takes very good care of them, and she loves them very much. Uh, me and her still talk. We catch up about once a year or so. You know, we'll talk like old times like we used to. Every now and then the conversation will take a turn, and she'll say something like, you know, sometimes, Jeff, I wish I never met you. Because then I wouldn't have to know what it feels like to really love someone. As for me, I'm, I'm, I'm doing pretty good too. So those, those dark years of my life are over. I have a great job that I really like. I live in a nice place and I make a decent salary. There's probably just one thing missing. Uh, remember that switch that I was talking about before? The switch that, that my mind turned off to help me deal with life? So now that I'm in a better place in my life, I'd really, like, I'd really like to flip that switch back on again. But I can't fucking find it. I've looked everywhere. <laughs> but that's a work in progress. Thank you, guys.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Greg Laswell behind me now. And don't forget, you will get $50 off your purchase of one of those fantastic Casper mattresses. If you go to casper.com slash risk and use the promo code risk. Now, as always, there are a slew of live dates for you to know about on December 12th. We're in Salt Lake City. On the 17th, we're in New York. On the 19th, we're in LA at the Nerdist Showroom. As always, on the 15th of January, we're in San Francisco. We also have a Nashville date in January, but the actual date is to be determined. On the 27th of January, we are at the Bell House in New York City, in Brooklyn to be specific. On the 28th of January, we're in LA, and then we have a bunch of February dates. We're in Carborough, North Carolina, Austin, Texas, Dallas, Texas, and Houston, Texas. That's all in February. The Carborough date has yet to be determined, but the theme is holy shit. Austin is on February 12th. The theme is confused. Houston is on February 13th. The theme is hostile. And Dallas is on February 14th. The theme is guilty. You can pitch me for any of those shows at kevin at risk-show.com. Now, you might have heard that we just went independent again, just like Risk was in our first few years. We are an indie production again. We left the Maximum Fun network of podcasts just this past week. Jesse Thorne and everyone else there was truly a joy to work with while we were there. We just wanted to take everything under our own reins again. And that is why, if you would like to support us, you can now do so directly, knowing that your entire donation is going right to risk. That is at the support us page at risk-show.com. Whether it has been during our initial independent phase or even the time that we were at Max Fun, we have always been dearly grateful and very, very much relied on the support of the listeners who love what we do. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Our Milwaukee show was such a joy that we're we're kind of keeping it keep. <laughs>